Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Julie Holland is a psychiatrist who specializes in psychopharmacology with a practice in New York City. She's the author of an incredible book called Moody Bitches and also a new book called Good Chemistry, which I just read and loved. Today, we're talking about the science of connection and how today's world constantly puts us in fight or flight mode which has a negative effect on everything from our sleep to our metabolism to our libido. Rinse and repeat. Julie shares a few tools to help us get back into the parasympathetic mode, like left nostril breathing and a method called havening, which is also critical for people who don't have anyone to touch during COVID. We talk about the impact of childhood trauma has on us individually, and we also talk about how the United States in particular is dealing with its own trauma from its past and its impact on the rest of the world. We also talked about the spiritual components of connection and how they intersect with science. We talk about cannabis, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and the role that psychedelics play in healing ourselves and our connection to the world. We trade psychedelic experiences, which you might know is one of my favorite topics. And Julie also helps us deepen our understanding of how we can reconnect to ourselves, to others, and our planet oneness and unification and integration. It's good for our bodies. It's good for our brains. It's good for our souls. It's good for the planet. It's good for society. You know, this is really that this is a lesson that psychedelics can teach us is that oneness is the goal and that and that separation is an illusion. I'll let Dr. Julie Holland take it from here. I thought it was so fascinating to understand just sort of really how you laid it out both in terms of what we're already creating and why we're creating these chemicals in our brains how they're you know reflected in other agents whether it's opiates or psychedelics and sort of how we get to that because your career right has been sort of trying to help people tinker with their chemistry to get them to a place of feeling connection which hit me in the gut when you were talking about sort of the thing the tools of of psychiatry traditional psychiatry these drugs aren't intended to help people connect they're designed to help you not mind that you're disconnected right so you know i do have some dissatisfaction with uh, some of the tools that are available widely to psychiatrists and actually my last book moody bitches was all about how a lot of women are sort of over-pathologized and over-diagnosed and over-medicated, and they don't necessarily need all these medicines. So I did, you know, good chemistry sort of picks up where Moody Bitches left off in talking about, 
that there is some inadequacy with the with the daily dose that a lot of people are taking of antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds and sleeping pills, that if you get to some of the fundamental issues that are causing the unrest, you don't need these band-aids. So the book is about what is the chemistry of connection? What is the good chemistry? What makes us feel good and feel like we belong and like we feel safe? What does that chemistry look like? And how can we get it from things that aren't prescription medicines. And so some of the book talks about behaviors that can bring you this good chemistry. And then some of the book talks about drugs that can sort of mimic the good chemistry that you get from connected behaviors. Yeah, which I thought was so, you know, in the section about opiates. And if you don't mind if I read you a section, because I thought it was so helpful for me to understand what's happening in that context. Yeah, You write, what no one seems to be mentioning is that opiates act on the same receptors of the brain as the body's own naturally occurring chemicals. In fact, the ones that leave you feeling loved, soothed, warm, and safe. These opioid receptors exist in part to make bonding pleasurable. They allow social connections to relieve stress and make it possible for warm feelings between friends helping other friends. Despite our national hand-wringing over the opioid epidemic, we continue to ignore the central issue. Opiates mimic the body's response to feeling cared for, which I think was so, I was like, oh my God, I get it (laughs) in a different way. Yeah. Well, you know, I had a lot of these sort of aha moments when I started, you know, the original subtitle for this book was was called a unified theory of connection. I was really trying Mm. to unify all these all these different ideas I had about oxytocin, about endorphins or endocannabinoids, which are the body's naturally occurring cannabis like molecules. And I was trying to understand all that chemistry in terms of behavior. And I keep I keep I kept coming back to this idea that when you when you feel safe, and connected and hooked in and like you belong to something that puts your body in in the parasympathetic state which is the exact opposite of fight or flight right we mm-hmm. all know about fight or flight and i'm you know i the thing i say is like from middle school to medical school i must have been taught about fight or flight like a dozen times and and every time it was sold to me as like this is the key to our survival and survival of the fittest you know it's all about fight or flight and this is how we survive and the truth is that's bullshit. There's this whole other flip side, which is really how we survive, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. It helps us to rest and digest, and it helps our body to repair itself. But we, when we're social and when we're connected and we feel hooked in and like somebody's got our back, we can be in that other state away from fight or flight. We can be in the rest and digest or the connect and protect mode. So the book is about the parasympathetic nervous system and how to get over to that side, to get away from fight and flight and over to connect and and protect. Or some people call it tend and befriend. Maybe you've heard that one. That's Brene Brown's saying for it. So, but anyway, the, so oxytocin enables this behavior and, you know, the same way that, that fight or flight or the sympathetic nervous system that runs on adrenaline and cortisol, right? So the flip side the, the tendon befriend, the parasympathetic, that really runs on oxytocin. But the way that oxytocin makes social things feel good really comes down to the endorphin system and the endocannabinoid system. So it's all our natural chemistry, the things that can make us feel good if we're, if we're cuddling, if we're having sex, if we're gazing into somebody's eyes, you know, when we really feel bonded with somebody, oxytocin is enhancing that behavior, it's enabling that behavior. But oxytocin needs endorphins and endocannabinoids to actually make that behavior feel good. So when you take Mm -hmm. an opiate, you feel as though you are in this parasympathetic state, you know, your heart rate goes down, your breathing goes down, your body gets very calm, you are in this sort of parasympathetic state, and it feels good. So the idea would be, you know, it's so so stupid, but like this, this slogan of hugs, not drugs really has a basis in in pharmacology and and biology that really does make sense that yes if if you are being held you don't need the drugs because the activity of connecting and bonding and trusting will fill you with that good chemistry and you you won't sort of have this itch that you're trying to scratch yeah I want to talk about sort of the chemistry of of, of, of where things go wrong but first just, I loved the tactical list at the beginning of the book for things that people can do to to transition into para, like the long exhale, et cetera. Do you mind sharing just sort of a few quick 
Yeah. So there's, there's all sorts of things that you can do to put yourself into the parasympathetic mode. So to get into para, the quickest, easiest thing to do is to breathe in and out through your nose, leave your mouth out of it. And if you are really panicking, you can breathe in and out just through your left nostril. You plug up your right nostril and you just breathe in and out through your left. And if you Google left nostril breathing, you'll see that there really are studies showing that this can put people into para and it can calm you down. So that's one thing, the breath. Also, any exhale longer than an inhale helps to put you in para. So that means things like singing, chanting, or just doing very specific breathing techniques. You know, you breathe in for four and out for eight, or you breathe in for four and you hold for seven and out for eight, anything like that, where your exhale is longer than your inhale helps to put you mm -hmm. in para. And then the other thing is something called havening, which I stumbled across a few years ago, but basically it's like you hug yourself and you stroke your arms from shoulder to elbow downward. And you keep having this downward stroke from shoulder to elbow on each of your arms. And if you try it, you if you do it about eight or 10 times, you do sort of start to notice that there is something soothing about it. You can do it to yourself. You can have somebody do it to you. You can do it to somebody else, but it's called havening. And it is a way to, to calm yourself and put you into para. And then there's other things like floating or being out in nature. And then there are some drugs that can help to put you in para. And depending on what your response is. Sometimes cannabis or CBD can help to put you into para. So I wrote quite a bit in Good Chemistry about, about cannabis and about CBD and, and how they work in terms of, of keeping you in this rest and digest phase. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb, this was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I want to talk about cannabis for sure in a minute, but it's interesting. I mean, thinking about it from the context of being a psychopharmacologist and and then at a certain another point in the book you say sort of trauma the one the besides dying probably is like the one eventuality of life like you just never get what you need in your childhood you're never you know and obviously people get varying degrees of what they need but you want it on a I think you said you wanted it on a needlepoint pillow in your office but assuming yeah. that that <laughs> you can't address like how much how much of our biochemistry is influenced by our environment versus how many people are just deficient or overactive in certain parts of their brain, regardless of what might have happened to them in their life? Like how, much, how, how many external interventions do you think are required or theoretically would there be none? So, I mean, the, you know, the first thing to say is that everybody's different. Everyone's got their own genetics, right? Everybody's got their own particular chemical set points. And then everybody has their own traumas. And yeah, the, the, the needlepoint pillow would just say like every childhood has trauma. And, you know, it's our job to sort of dig it up and examine it and, and make some sort of peace with it and figure out how it's influencing your behavior. But, you know, no matter how perfect you think your childhood was or how terrible it was, like everybody has trauma and it's relative to their experiences, right? Like even if you, you know, if most of your needs were cared for, but then one day you were ignored or you were abandoned, even if the next day, you know, your mother came back, there is still that I was traumatized. I was abandoned. Okay. It only happened for a day, but for me, it was a big deal. So or you were shunned by your friends, as you point out, like it can come from all sorts of places. Right. And it, right. It can come, it can come from your parents. It can come from being sent to military school when you were 13, for example, like people get traumatized, you know, as toddlers, as teenagers, and, and it changes your behavior. And it's like once bitten, twice shy, you know, things that hurt you in the past, then you will avoid. 
So, mm-hmm. um, but it, there's something called a stress diathesis model, which means that different people can withstand different amount, amounts of stress, you know, and like some people will crumble not being stressed very much. And other people, it takes a tremendous amount of stress for them to even you know, have any response whatsoever. So it is this, this interaction of the genetics and the environment and they, and they both uh, mold the other, you know, if you're the kind of person who's, who is easily hurt, you're going to have, you're, you're not going to be so sort of bold socially. So they they both inform the other, you know, the, the behavior affects the chemistry, the chemistry affects the behavior. It's, it's, and the other thing I would say, just for the record is like, everything that I write about, it's more complicated than I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I don't want to dumb it down too much, but it's, it's all very complicated. Like as much as I talk about oxytocin, it's actually this whole complicated pathway that includes oxytocin and vasopressin and or like the interactions between oxytocin and testosterone. Like there's a lot of complicated back and forth. And I'll say something like, it's pretty much like they're on a seesaw, you know, when, when dopamine is up, serotonin is down and vice versa. And, but it's like, it's not that simple, but the, yeah. but the end result is that it's almost that simple. And I, and you have to have some sort of mechanism for explaining this stuff. Yeah. No, and it's and and then it be, as you start adding in exterior elements and tinkering more, you know, you really obviously want to be with someone who knows what they're doing and is subtly trying to can understand the implication of adding extra, you know, adding SSRIs or anti, you know, adding a benzo or whatever it may be. Since it's, it can, at least it's been my experience in observing some friends who have, you know, complained that they're suddenly on like, and then you have this to control this. And then this is happening. Exactly. So like add right. some Adderall, you know, it totally happens all the time that there, that you end up with this polypharmacy, right? You take one medicine and then you have side effects. So you take a second one. And then over time, the first medicine causes these other problems. So then you add a third one and this happens a lot. And people end up on two or three or four medicines. And then if they go to a new doctor, sometimes the new doctor doesn't want to get rid of the old ones, but they have a few favorites, so they layer them on. And, you know, the longer you keep going to doctors, the more meds you're going to take. So that was, you know, really the point of Moody Bitches was to try to kind of break the cycle and be like, you know, we don't all need all these medicines. (laughs) We need to make some fundamental changes in how we live our lives so that we don't need so many medicines. And, And now what I'm talking about is that for some people using plant medicines having access mm-hmm. to plant medicines like like psilocybin and magic mushrooms or like ayahuasca, which is a psychedelic tea, that having access to these plant medicines may make such fundamental changes in, in our perception and perhaps even our chemistry and our, our wiring, let's call it, that maybe you don't need the medicines after this. So yeah. that's sort of revolutionary in psychiatry is instead of taking your daily dose you could actually have uh, one or two very intense psychotherapy sessions with a catalyst, you know, MDMA-assisted therapy or psilocybin-assisted therapy. But in the process of having these therapies, you don't need your meds anymore. I mean, that's definitely what they saw with the MDMA research, is that these people had post-traumatic stress disorder. They were on meds that really weren't working well. But after the MDMA-assisted therapy sessions, and there were at least two and sometimes three in these protocols, but after going through that kind of intense digging through the traumas, they didn't need their medicines anymore. Yeah. And those medicines might be things that are prescribed and those medicines might be, you know, all the things that we do to numb ourselves, whether it's alcohol or shopping or, you know, screen addiction. It's just this, uh, you know, the, the things that distract us from our pain. I mean, I love like how throughout the book it seemed, you know, you're essentially calling for connection. I know that what as you said, that was almost the title of the book that the was about connection, you know, that you start with connection to yourself. And, you know, I've been thinking that about that a lot in this time of, you know, still being in more or less quarantine, although parts yeah. of the country are opening up. But I don't I'm I'm curious to understand the effects on mental health, but I wonder if they won't be as acute as we think, in part because what the, as you, you're talking about sort of mass shooters, et cetera, like those people are all loners, right? But it's not, it's not always the salve just to be with people. You know, people are, go to school with others and then turn guns on them, right? It's, 
they're lacking the deeper, more fundamental connection both to themselves and to community, which isn't really about being with people. It's about connecting with people. Yeah. So, you know, the the way that I sort of divided up the book is that, you know, you have connection with the self, you have connection with a partner, then you have connection with the family, then, then with the community. And then I sort of broaden the scope so that you're connecting with nature, with the planet. And then the last chapter is about connecting with the cosmos and dying and tripping and like, and the sense that everything is connected and we're all connected. And so my favorite um, part, the, the, the ending, <laughs> like well, the, the, the beginning, the like picture. the self, yeah, the self. And then, and then, because yeah. I think, you know, in terms of psychedelics, that's what they bring, right. Is both this ability to integrate all those harmed parts of yourself and to like get to know yourself and feel whole and complete again. And then this connection to something that's much deeper and more profound and that feels sacred, regardless of your spiritual beliefs. Yeah. So, and, and I, I tried to talk about sort of different drugs in different chapters, you know, and like, well, here's a drug that could particularly help you connect with yourself. Like I talk about cannabis quite a bit in the first chapter, because while I personally have experienced cannabis making me feel much more appreciative and connected to nature, I also know that it can just connect me to my own body, to my posture, you know, and, and I can, it can help me to feel embodied. And that's part of connecting with the self. So mm-hmm. but then like in the in the chapter on couples, I talk about MDMA, MDMA assisted psychotherapy as being something that can be particularly good for couples. And I talk about research that's going on in couples where one member of the dyad has post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, the family chapter, I don't talk too much about drugs, although I, I do, <laughs> I do <laughs> like I try to go easy there. You talk about autism a little bit there, right? And Yeah. And, and about parenting, yeah. you know, there's a lot, I mean, if you're going to write a book that, that is explaining oxytocin, it's going to come out quite a bit in the family chapter because of the, of the nursing and childbirth. And there's a lot of oxytocin right. that goes into parenting and bonding. But I also sort of cop to the fact, and, and we all are copping to it very nicely now, is like, as much as, as you know, we need to connect with a family and it feels good to connect with a family, it also feels terrible to spend, you know, months on end with, you know, sort of claustrophobically with your family. So I think it's important to, to you know, be honest and not, and not gloss over how difficult it is. And also to be in a relationship, you know, with when you're with somebody kind of 24-7, they're really going to throw a mirror up to you a lot and let you know how you're behaving. And that can be really uncomfortable. And I think that happens sometimes with our families, too, is they really confront us with our own behavior. So everybody sort of has their burden, right, during during sheltering. I mean, the people who are alone feel feel more isolated. I mean, I had a patient I talked to a couple of weeks ago, and she's like, no one's, you know, I've had no human touch in nine weeks now, you know? Yeah. And we're not built for that. We are not built for that kind of isolation. It's not just it's not just that it makes us depressed and anxious. It really deranges our, our physiology and our ability to sleep well and metabolize our food and even and to learn. So, you know, chronic isolation can make you obese and have a lot of immune deficiencies and it also interferes with learning, which was something that I that I wrote about in in Moody Bitches also and wrote about again in Good Chemistry because it's important. You know, you put mm-hmm. somebody in solitary confinement, they're not going to learn anything. You know, we learn from modeling our behavior in in groups, uh, modeling other people's behavior, getting feedback on our behavior, but there're really interesting animal studies showing that if you if you try to teach an animal something and it's in isolation, it won't learn. But if you put the animal in social housing, it does learn. And we've seen this also with, with addiction, right? That when you're in social housing, the, the, you know, the animals don't self-administer these drugs. But if they are in, alone in a cage, they'll press that lever until they die. So mm-hmm. we have to talk about how is disconnection affecting our bodies and our behavior and are we getting what we need? You know, it's funny because this book is very sort of anti, like put your laptop down, put your phone away, go outside, you know, go hug people and smell their pheromones and, you know, go cuddle. And, you know, a lot of the things that I'm telling people to do all of a sudden now, you know, because of the contagion issue, they can't do all these things. So we are more than ever, we're glued to our devices and we're getting our connections through social media or, you know, Zoom and FaceTime and texting. And it's going to have to be enough for right now. And there's interesting data showing that there is some oxytocin active in these behaviors, but not nearly as much as you would get person to person. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. 
When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless high quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Well, everyone needs to find their neighborhood mushroom dealer and use this time (laughs) to... Um, though I know you're very focused on harm reduction and these things can be scary and and bring up big, you know, I'm not, not making light of what can be very intense experience. I've had, I've tried a few different things at this point in my life and I've had one really hard experience and three great experiences, but the hard experience, I wouldn't have wanted to be alone. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, a few things, you know, uh, if you're fearful of contagion and viruses and the news is making you anxious, it's possible that if you take a psychedelic, you're going to have a pretty bad experience and those things are just going to be amplified. Now may not be the best time for people who don't have experience with psychedelics to venture in. But if you are properly educated and properly prepared and you have a safe setting to do so, it can be a time to sort of reconnect with yourself and what your priorities are or to, to feel a sense of connection with, you know, with everything or with the cosmos or the heavens or, you know, however you want to define God, that can be really therapeutic for people to have that. But I'm, I'm certainly not one to just, you know, recommend that people take these incredibly powerful drugs, you know, willy nilly without any sort of preparation or education or, or understanding of what they're doing. Yeah, I do think, you know, and if I can read you another passage from your book, when you're interviewing Dr. Jeff Gus, he worked on the um, psilocybin cancer anxiety studies where they're essentially it's people who have a terminal diagnosis and they do psilocybin and it helps them. I mean, that, that research is amazing. But and this, I think, is very if it can't be embodied at this moment in time, it's so instructive because I think what we're all collectively or many of us are fearing is this like, I could die, right? Like right. I could go out and get COVID and die. And he says, I don't think that the fear of death is as inconsolable as you think. The people in the cancer anxiety study actually are having an adjustment reaction to some really, really, really bad news. They're being called upon to face something we all have to face, which is our own mortality. And there's an antidote to that, which is love, loving people around you, loving life, loving yourself, caring, connecting, being present. That's the antidote. And that's the medicine. It's loving every minute you have not dying before you die. Yes. Well, a- amen to Jeff Gus. So, you know, I completely agree. I, I do talk quite a bit about death in this book. Because, I mean, the truth is I, I wanted to write an entire book about death and my agent was like, I don't think it's going to sell. But so we'll, <laughs> we'll broaden it out a little bit. You can have a, you can, you can talk about it within, you know, the context of something else. But, you know, we all are in, usually we are in tremendous denial about our mortality and the fact that we're all going to die. And COVID has has been good to bring this to the forefront because we do need to process it. We do need to come to terms with it. You know, no one, nobody here gets out alive, and that's that's some pretty hard spiritual work, though. Sort of accepting that, coming to terms with that, and you know, one of the things that a very intense psychedelic experience can sort of gift you with, if you if you do have a, a full blown mystical experience is that at some point you are in a void and you feel like there's nothing, but then at another point you are sort of merged with the light and you feel a tremendous amount of joy and love and peace and bliss. Not everybody has these experiences, but many people do. And the 
in you know the the psilocybin cancer studies, which uh, you know started um, at UCLA and then went to Hopkins and then went to NYU, but all of these studies really found the same thing, which is that if people have profound mystical experiences, they will have a different relationship with their impending death. And Catherine McLean, who's interviewed in this book, she talks about psychedelics as being like like practice, almost like death practice. Like you, for a little bit, you have a sense of what it feels like to not exist or that your sort of essence has merged with like a bigger pool of energy, say, you know, it's hard to talk about this without sounding like it's a little woo woo and, and crazy, but to have some, some death practice or some, or at least some ego disintegration, you know, this, this sense that you don't exist anymore and that you're, you're, your being has merged with something bigger. Um, that can be a really blissful experience. But letting go, not existing, that ego disintegration. A lot of people will have a, a quote bad trip around that experience. It's it's yeah. hard to let go and not exist, and it's and some people fight it. And you know, part of the of the bad trip is sort of fighting where where the medicine is trying to take you. And, and not only that, but, you know, this idea of a bad trip, you know, it's, it's a challenging experience that you may really learn from and grow from, but, you know, you need to be in a safe place to experience it and you need support before, during, and after. Yeah. No, my bad trip was I did DMT, not really understanding what I was getting into. I thought it was 5-MeO DMT, but it was DMT and which is like the robot version and I experienced the ego dissolution it's very fast and yeah when I experienced it I just panicked I thought you know I was thinking about my two kids and I was like I can't like I can't die and and then I ended up I can't not be here and then I ended up in a what felt like a car wash full of dirty water and plastic toys it's very brief so it was 15 (laughs) minutes about I'm sorry that I don't know the answer to this, but no, did you, did I haven't. It's interesting to write about, but it, I need it, to. It's yeah. Really funny to me is that you're, you're talking about this DMT experience and sort of lamenting that you didn't have five MEO. And I had the exact opposite experience, which is that the first I had five MEO DMT before I had DMT. And it was so, it was just like too much for me. And I sort of lamented that I didn't have the DMT first. So it's funny that, you know, it's like the grass is always greener. <laughs> Um, I, you know, it may just be that these are very, you know, these are really powerful power tools. And um, yeah, well, my and, understanding and it's mercifully yeah. short, right? At least you have that, that, you know, I mean, that, because the thing with LSD is it lasts and lasts, you know, 12 hours, whereas like something like DMT or 5-MeO, you're talking about 15 or maybe 30 minutes. So exactly. Um, at least, you know, you come back down to sort of somewhat normal pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. And then you're completely normal. And but it's almost like I think what what happens or what I've been led to believe you'd know far more about this than I would is that you get sort of stuck like you almost need to get blasted past the point of even being able to reclaim your identity versus like somehow landing in the middle where you're like in in the literal fight to the death which I did not yeah. accomplish. <laughs> right. So, you know, I mean, I think the way to think about DMT and 5-MeO-DMT and is it's sort of like a telescoping down. Like if you, you know, if you took mushrooms, maybe they would last like four hours, maybe six hours. If you took LSD, it may last like 12 hours. That's a lot of time to like kind of, it's you're coming up, then you're peaking, then you're going down. But But to telescope all of that intense mystical experience into 15 minutes or 30 minutes it's a lot to process. It's yeah. it really, it's not a great place, you know, for people to start. I mean, I, you know, I, I talk quite a bit about MDMA being a reasonable place for people to start if you're working with somebody, because it's not as abrupt a shift in consciousness. It's really much more subtle. And one of the nice things about MDMA assisted therapy is that you can really sort of get the lay of the land and get get an overview of where the trouble spots are. It's almost like an archaeological dig, right? You can just sort of get, get the the scope of what you're dealing with. And maybe you pick a little, some low hanging fruit, but you know, you may have to go back a second time or a third time and, and really hone in and, and maybe you need a jackhammer to get down a few levels. And then maybe that's where you're using something like, like psilocybin or LSD. But you know, this is right now, unfortunately, all of this is illegal. It's, uh, it, it's happening in clinical research, which is great. It's also happening, you know, with underground therapists, which is a problem because, 
Sometimes you get lucky and you get somebody who's fabulous and they can really prepare you and they can really support you before, during, and after. But I think as these medicines get more popular, you know, you're going to have more people sort of experimenting and, and working with underground therapists. And these are not completely benign, easy to work with tools. You know, they're, they're power tools where you have to kind of, you know, put on your safety goggles and make sure you read the manual before you engage, you know? Oh, big time. Yeah, no. And, and, and in the same way that, th- that they can be very hard and scary, you lose some of the, you lose it if you don't integrate it. And right. I've right. done, I sound like the biggest druggie, but this is literally in the last year after being quite virtuous throughout my entire life. But when I did, I've done MDMA now, an underground therapist twice, and it's been one of the most, they've both been some of the most meaningful experiences in my life. And as you say, you're not, you're not, you don't go anywhere. If anything, you just go inside. It's like a deep embodiment experiment experience. At least it was for yeah. me. Yeah. I'm very much about my life and not about touching the divine, which I am, I already feel connected to the divine, but that is, that is a curiosity for me. But to get there is a hard bridge, I think. But I think MDMA, in my experience, and I did a lot of work before and after and still work on it with my normal therapist who didn't do it with me, yeah. but has been instrumental. But it's not, it's not almost not it's a waste to have the experience and to not make the integration of it the most important thing. Yeah, you know, it's we're very big on the word integration um, when we talk about psychedelic, you know, processes. And, you know, I, I definitely talk about integration and good chemistry, but I talk about it in so many different ways. Because, yes, you want to integrate your experience, you want to take notes, you want to put your your thoughts into action, you know, I mean, it's great if you can actually write, write some things down, you know, if you have these sort of aha moments and epiphanies, if you can write them down and then, and then over the next several weeks, you can try to really put them into, into your behavior and integrate them into your behavior. But the, mm-hmm. but there's all kinds of different kinds of integration. Like there's, you can just be integrated as a, as a one person that, okay, I'm going to integrate all, all the sort of various facets of myself and make sure we're all on the same page and that I don't have anybody, you know, who's a sabotager aboard. So that's, that's another way of sort of integrating all your different selves. Or we can have integration of different groups of people. For instance, progressives and conservatives, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. let's just say, for example. I, I'm really interested in sort of, you know, how can we put the lessons of the psychedelic experience to practice, to integrate now with where we are now, because right now, you know, we are becoming more and more a nation divided. And, you know, I have this whole chapter on society and community and how to connect with community. And that's where I talk about politics. And I also Mm -hmm. talk about oxytocin. You know, there's this, there's this whole other level of oxytocin, which is that it can also be used for social cohesion. So this idea of like, are you on my team or are you on their team? You know, are you an us or are you a them? And oxytocin helps to make those distinctions also. So yeah. while, while I'm saying uh, that if, if you play like a money game and the people who are given oxytocin, maybe they're more generous with their money, but they're also sort of generous with people they consider to be on their team and more stingy with people who they consider to be outsiders. So that we have to sort of admit that we are that we are tribal, you know, that that's sort of part of our genetics. And, and whenever possible, we have to integrate and come together and not, you know, not be so polarized. But you know, I don't know how much you want to get into uh, our president politics. But yeah, the polarization is not a coincidence. You know, there are certain kind of personality types that really thrive, uh, not only on compulsive lying, but on but on creating situations where you end up pitting some people against other people and you, you create this sort of imbroglio or this chaos where other fe- people are fighting about you and what you said or what you didn't say. And, you know, Trump's personality type is really that kind of person where, yeah. where he is just sort of sowing chaos and he's sowing division and polarization. And, and this book is an attempt to try to bring everybody together a little bit and, and show that oneness and unification and integration, it's good for our bodies, it's good for our brains, it's good for our souls, it's good for the planet, it's good for society. You know, this is really, that this is a lesson that, that psychedelics can teach us, is that oneness is the goal. And that, yeah. and that separation is an illusion. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. 
CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cookstoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. There are two really interesting points that I'd love to sort of hear you expound on. One was the concept of identity politics, where you talk about it from a biological standpoint that, it, you know, it com- you write, it comes down to the default mode network, this us versus them mentality and strengthening their sense of self, which is separate from everything else. Remember that our brains may respond to foreign ideas as if our very bodies are being attacked. Ideological challenges need to happen compassionately in a safe environment. And I think people just don't understand. They are not recognizing or we're not attuned to recognizing that we're having a biological response. We might think we sound rational and logical as we yammer at each other, but we're just both feeling incredibly unsafe and attacked. Right. I mean, basically, the, the easiest way to think about it is that it puts you into fight or flight that you not only feel sort of uh, intellectually challenged, but your body responds as if you are being physically challenged to either fight or run away. And so you have to put somebody into the parasympathetic mode where they feel, where they feel safe, like you said, and where they feel connected and protected. If they're going to be open to learning new ways of being, or even just to learning information, right? You, you won't learn if you're in this sympathetic mode. So So you, people have to be, you know, it's like, you ever heard, I'm sure as a mother, you have heard this idea of like a teachable moment with the kids, right? Like there's times, right? There's times where you can be like, you know, we're not supposed to do this and this is how we do it. But like, while they're having a tantrum is not when you're going to teach them how to behave. It's impossible. They're not open to, they cannot process data. They're not open to information transfer when they're in that place. Yeah. So So to get everyone into para, give every, I know that there are efforts to get, as you write about in the book, that Natalie is working on a maps to get, you know, Israelis and Palestinians doing ayahuasca together, which I think is amazing. Yeah, the, it is interesting. The other th- yeah. The other thing that I thought was just really beautifully said is when you were talking about politics, but you write, some of our politicians appear physically unhealthy and out of touch with their own bodies. And I dare yes, say with right? their own sexuality. Yeah. Yep, Much of the yep. hate we... Much of the hate we see fomenting on social media and elsewhere, whether coming from trolls or some politicians, is projected self-hatred. We need to remember this, and hopefully it will allow us some measure of compassion for the haters. People who traumatize were traumatized. Yeah, so this is tough. This is tricky. And I've actually been trying to write a little piece about about Trump and compassion. And the the current title is Sympathy for the Devil. Mm -hmm. But it it is this idea that he like, and this is why I mentioned military school at 13. Like, you know, as much as you may not want to have compassion for the president, you can you can look at him and see that there is something really fundamental uh, going on with him. His diet is terrible. His sleep hygiene is terrible. He's, you know, he's sort of mean and nasty and dismissive to other people. And he, there's, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not his psychiatrist. I haven't treated him. You know, I understand that there is something called the, the Goldwater rule about that psychiatrists aren't supposed to discuss public figures. However, um, that's a rule that came out of the uh, APA and I'm not a member. So I'm going to proceed because I did swear to Hippocratic (laughs) oath and I took an oath to, you know, uh, protect people from themselves and protect other people from those people. You know, when I was at Bellevue, I had two main jobs, which was to like to stop people from hurting themselves and stop people from hurting other people. So you know, when I when I look at Trump, I do see somebody who was traumatized. I do see somebody who has poor self-care. 
I also honestly think that he's got some sort of cognitive sort of dementing process happening. You know, his vocabulary is getting worse. His, his personality is getting sort of coarser. It's very hard for him to take in information from his advisors. Part of that is narcissism, right? But part of that mm-hmm. really perhaps, perhaps he has inherited, you know, his father at Alzheimer's. It's certainly possible um, given, given his sort of body status and his demographics, it's very possible that he is in the sort of early to not so early part of a, of a, of like a dementing process, basically. So, you know, like I said, I've, I haven't examined him. He's not my patient, but, you know, as a psychiatrist and as somebody who sort of has a duty to warn other people when they're in danger, I do feel obligated to write this piece about Trump, but not not just, you know, picking apart the bullying and the malignant narcissism and the lying because it's easy and it's low hanging fruit and everybody's already talking about that. Let's go a little bit deeper and let's say, you know, what have the lessons of psychedelics taught us? They've taught us that, you know, everybody's traumatized and that we have to be compassionate and that we're all connected and that we're more alike than different. And so I'm trying to apply some of those rules to how we think about Trump and how and how we how we deal yeah. with the situation. You know, now right. with Corona, it's like we are on our knees collectively. And we have a choice. Like he's either brought us to our lowest point and then we can rise right. or and, and theoretically come together or and rebuild and and cr- and create something that's lasting that addresses some of these massive systemic issues or we will go lower still. But I think he plays you know, in the context of having a conversation with you about like, what is what what is the spiritual construct of the universe? I think he is a very important lesson for us if we right. choose to engage with it in that way. Yeah, well, I totally I, I agree. And um, there's just one more thing that I was going to talk about a little bit, w- which plays into this idea that like Trump had some sort of trauma in his childhood. Like we all we all yeah. had trauma in our childhood. He's no exception. And our trauma informs some of our behavior. But the other thing is that our nation has early childhood trauma and early childhood wounding. Our nation was founded on the genocide of the native people. And, you know, this nation was sort of built on the backs of slaves who came from Africa, but we also had like immigrant workers who were treated terribly. And this is our, this is like the national childhood wounding. Yeah. Is the, the genocide of the native people and slavery and how terribly we treat immigrants. And, you know, none of that has really changed. And the, you know, COVID has showed us sort of the discrepancies in, in healthcare availability and, you know, this the gross inequity that is inherent in, in our healthcare system. And yes, Trump has, has made it very clear that racism is alive and well on Americans and we need to we need to address it. Yeah. And, you know, one thing again, going back to is it it's Catherine McLean, right? Yeah, yeah. I loved this part where she talks about she says this the psychedelic experiences sorry the psychedelic experience teaches you about how to live your life i get excited about people finding their personal religion that thing that will sustain you at all the difficult points of your life and that's actually the most radical thing about psychedelics is that they give every single individual the empowerment to access the divine in themselves there's no intermediary. That's also the scariest aspect. It scares the medical doctors. I think it rightfully scares governments. It's a lot of power that you're reminding individuals that they have. Yeah, I love, you know, I call I call Catherine K. Mack. I always have. And I, I love what K. Mack has to say there. It is, you know, you don't need a priest, right? I mean, it's, it's subversive to give people this much power. And, you know, that's kind of how I feel about cannabis too, that it's subversive because you're giving people their own medicine. They don't need to go to the doctor. They don't need to go to the pharmacist. They can grow a plant that can be used as an anti-inflammatory to help them with things like arthritis or diabetes, or, you know, I'm not saying it's the only medicine, but it can help a lot of medical problems. So I, I mean, yeah. I also just, I love that cannabis has gone from like illegal to essential recently. You know, it's like, it's come a long way, baby. So, um, yeah. but, but, but cannabis also gives you a little bit of that taste of, of the divine within, you know, it's, I mean, my husband calls it the, like the people, the people psychedelic, you know, it's, it's like a miniature version of that. Will you talk a bit more about cannabis and it's intera- and, and it's inflammatory and pain capacity? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's an anti-inflammatory medicine and 
inflammation is really the cause of a lot of, of bodily complaints. It, it has a lot to do with arthritis and diabetes and obesity and insomnia. And even inflammation has a lot to do with depression and anxiety. So anything you can do to decrease inflammation, it's like putting yourself in para. You know, being in fight or flight is pro-inflammatory. So being in parasympathetic is anti-inflammatory. Meditation is anti-inflammatory. Anti-inflammatory diet is anti-inflammatory. But cannabis is a potent anti-inflammatory medicine. So that's why it is particularly useful with helping people with, with pain. But it also helps to balance a lot of things that happen in metabolism and in the immune system. You know, what it, what, the way I sort of think about cannabis is that it helps us stay in homeostasis. The body is constantly in flux and we're constantly sort of adapting to whatever stressors are happening. And cannabis helps us adapt better. It, you could think of it as, an, as something called an adaptogen, that it helps you be more resilient, more adaptive. And you know, what's interesting actually is estrogen also helps people be sort of more adaptive and more resilient. And as, as women age, they're a little bit less accommodating, perhaps we could say. As the estrogen starts to wane and you get to be in your 50s and 60s, you, you start to give a few less fucks, basically, because yeah. you're you're, you're not going to accommodate people so much anymore. You know, that that phase of your life has passed. And I would love to talk so to you, you perhaps another time more about about uh, estrogen and and women. And, you know, there's a, there are a lot of things in Moody Bitches that are extremely helpful for women in particular. I mean, good chemistry is for everybody, men and women alike. But Moody Bitches also goes through a lot of a lot of issues around around cannabis and estrogen and, and how they sort of work in concert to keep you on your toes and resilient and, and adaptable and accommodating, which is something, you know, we all need to be at the moment. Although I would, I would say, let's not be too accommodating because we really need to make some <laughs> changes pretty damn quick. Do you think almost anyone can benefit from CBD? And I guess, and clarifying that CBD does not have THC, which is the psychoactive part. So it's not going to make yeah. you... Hi. So, well, a few things I would say there, because, you know, as a psychiatrist, I recommend CBD quite a bit because it actually is psychoactive. It does help with anxiety and it helps with focus. It's just it's not intoxicating. So hmm. I, I think that it does have sort of psychological or psychiatric effects. You know, it gives it gives people sort of a calm focus. And for some people, it also helps to cut appetite. So I do recommend CBD quite a bit to my patients, especially people who maybe they have like mild ADHD, but they don't always want to take stimulants. So CBD can be very helpful to give you that calm focus. Or I have people who are anxious and they're taking benzos, you know, like Xanax or Ativan. And I say, you know, you could be taking CBD every morning as a supplement and you probably wouldn't be reaching for the Xanax or Ativan quite as much. And there's really interesting research showing that high-dose CBD can be used as a mood stabilizer or even as an antipsychotic so that people with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia can actually benefit from high-dose CBD. And typically that is not necessarily instead of medicines, but perhaps in addition to medicines. So I'm a big proponent of, of medical cannabis and of CBD, and I, I have tons and tons of patients who take it and are doing very well with it. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Julie Holland. For more, head to naturalmood.com, and I hope you'll get a copy of her new book, Good Chemistry, as well as her classic, Moody Bitches. Both are available now. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.